This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. Bankruptcy is the legal proceeding initiated when a person or business is unable to repay outstanding debt or obligations. Today, we're going to talk about bankruptcy law and procedures with Frank Coxwell of Coxwell Attorneys. And as always, Nancy and Ryder are ready to answer any personal finance questions that you might have. You can send an email to money at mpbonline.org. Good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. I'm cold. R- really? Yes. It, it, I had to break out my boots again this morning, Kevin. <laughs> well, the good news I heard is I think it's supposed to warm up as the week goes along. But it's almost April, and here we are in our sweaters again. I know. I had not worn a sweater all year, and I've worn three this week, so... Although I'm playing tennis tonight and it's the upper 60s, it uh, you know. Oh, the, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll all be sweating on the way home, <laughs> well, right? bu- bundled, bundled up on the way into work and just uh, dripping on the, on the way home. So, Nancy, what's on your mind financially speaking? this Oh week? my goodness, Ryder, nothing much going on, is there? Just um, just the banks starting to give us all a know. little bit of um, nerves here. And uh, that's led us to... I think to, the banks have their own set of nerves, yeah. <laughs> little conditions going on. Um, so um, banking is so important to our overall economy, mm-hmm. but it's a business model that functions on trust. So depositors give their money or sell their money to the bank who promises them safekeeping, convenience, some interest along the way. A couple of services. You can write a check. Well, and you used to be able to get a toaster, okay? Wow. Right. Um, Bring back the toasters. That's the problem with banking these days. Yeah, but a bank is a money store, so they're buying that money wholesale from all of these depositors, and then they're turning around and loaning it out at a higher rate. And that spread, that difference in what they pay you for your few dollars versus what they charge somebody for a car loan, for instance, is how they make money. Mm -hmm. Um, But that depends on all of us not showing up at the same time to demand our money back. And And that is a surprisingly important point. It is very important. (laughs) Why is that important, Um, Ryder? So, so, right. You you give them money. You lend them money and they lend it out, right? So, like Nancy said, that's how they make money. So, since they take $100 from you and then turn around and lend $50 to somebody up to uh, the regulatory requirements are, you know, uh, up in the air. But uh, say ninety cents, ninety dollars out, they don't have all hundred dollars. So if you come back the next day and ask for the hundred dollars, they say, "Oh, we've got ten of your dollars in cash, but the rest of it and is that in ten is called the what? The reserve. Oh, the reserve. Yes. Yeah. So I was going through the uh, the capital requirements stack, and I was like, um, at one. Um, uh, so. 
they don't have all of your money there all of the time. So if everybody shows up and wants all of their money all at the same time, that's a real big problem for any bank, no matter how stable it is. So yeah, I, in an ideal world, maybe they could line up every time you make a deposit, they li- have a loan lined up and have that ready to send out to somebody. And every time you made a withdrawal, they'd have a loan payment coming in that could fund it. That would just, everything is perfectly matched. Nobody would have to worry about that. That is obviously not the case. That's just not possible to line that up. But they do have a lot of people with deposits and a lot of people with loans, and they can kind of figure out the behavior a little bit. Which brings up, I just had a conversation over the weekend with a banker who said our uh, was was talking about a local bank. I mm-hmm. won't name the local bank, but that... Um, what does it rhyme with? <laughs> 67% of their depositors were within that $250,000 FDIC limit. Silicon Valley Bank, only 3% of their depositors were within that. And so that's a huge difference in the type of deposits and how you can have a big impact. And Silicon Valley Bank, one of the problems here was there was a lot of talk on social media. And there were some voices who were saying, you know, this bank's in trouble. You need to pull your your money out. And so when you have big companies Mm -hmm. pulling out multi-million dollar accounts, that's going to cause a problem. And, and, and that's the thing. Generally, you don't expect people to all show up at one time and ask for their money out because why would everybody on Tuesday at three o'clock want all their money? Are they just as everyone planning a really expensive dinner Again, that night? That's back to trust. Right. Yeah. So you have to trust that the bank you know, is managing this well. You also kind of have to trust that everybody else is going to leave their money in there, which was the problem there at Silicon Bank, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. I, I want to say it was a quarter or about a quarter of their deposits left in a single day. And a lot of their deposits have been leaving uh, all that month. It just kind of came to an avalanche uh, right on that one day. So regulation helps some with requirements of, oh, banks need to keep this much capital reserve in in cash available for withdrawals. That's just a prudent thing to do. And then they have to have certain high-quality bonds, U.S. treasuries that they know are going to pay back. Which Which they they did. Which they do. One of the issues... Is so uh, long treasuries and mortgages, which people get for 15 or 20 years, that's very common for a bank to have that sort of stuff. Those longer dated bonds suffered a lot last year, and so it meant it might appear that the bank had less, a little less money than they needed. Um, one big thing that they changed last week is the Federal Reserve, which people, uh, banks will often lend their uh, treasuries to in order to get cash so they can meet withdrawals and meet day-to-day needs. They have expanded that lending facility. So in America, there's just a lot less concern about banks having trouble meeting withdrawals because they can get practically unlimited money now uh, because they do have good assets backing their deposits. It's just a matter of in the Silicon Valley Bank, they ran into problems timing those withdrawals with the assets that they had. But hopefully that will smooth out now. leading us into the topic today, the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank has filed bankruptcy. Frank, have they called you yet? <laughs> no, I don't. I only if, do. If, if, <laughs> if, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I would like to say something about bankruptcy before we really get into any of this stuff. Um most people have no idea what bankruptcy is all about. All they know is some of the bad things that they've heard about it. And these are all myths and misconceptions. Um, everybody thinks that 
I'm the last person they want to see, or a bankruptcy lawyer is the last person they want to see. But we really should be the first person you see so you can find out what's protected um, and what stuff you can keep. Uh, you don't lose everything when you file bankruptcy. The court lets you keep whatever you want to keep. You don't get anything for free, but you still pay for it And if you want to keep it. Um, you get a fresh start in bankruptcy. And uh, it, it just most people don't have any idea what it's about. And the hardest thing they have to do is make the call to come in and sit down and talk with someone. That's the voice of our guest for the hour, Frank Coxwell of Coxwell Attorneys. He's going to be our expert today about bankruptcy. Uh, so this might be a fear some people have, Frank. What, what effect does bankruptcy have on a person's credit? Well, your credit's going to take a hit, probably down around the 500s. Um, but I have an instruction package that we give our clients, and our clients can have their credit back in the 700s within a year. A year? That's I incredible. thought it took like seven years for all of that to roll off. That, that's what everybody thinks. And, and one of the first questions I get is, well, I won't be able to get anything for 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's not it. Our bankruptcy court right now is doing six people every half hour, four days a week. Wow. And that's just Jackson. We have another bankruptcy court in uh, Gulfport. So how does that compare to, I mean, I'm thinking about the financial crisis of 2008, and we had just the Great Recession. And right now, it looks like the economy is in pretty good shape, despite all these issues with the banks. Everyone seems to be working. How do those numbers compare to when we're in a tough economic time? Well, of course, during COVID, um, nobody wanted to file bankruptcy or do anything because the mortgages were being, uh, foreclosures were being deferred. Right, you had some protection. Everybody had all this free money coming in mm-hmm. from different places, and, and so nobody filed. I mean, my business was sucking air during the COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were barely holding on because there wasn't any reason for anybody to file. But all that stuff's off right now. Things are getting back. They're starting foreclosures and everything. So um, it's... It's picking back up. It had dropped real low during COVID, but it's picking back up. You're listening to Money Talks. Our website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past broadcasts. You can also download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone and listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. We're talking about bankruptcy today with our guest, Frank Coxwell of Coxwell Attorneys. So, Frank, should bankruptcy be the first option for someone that's struggling with debt? No. The first option should be meet with a bankruptcy lawyer. Find out what the bankruptcy can do for you, um, what assets you have that might not be protected. Because, I mean, if you're going to lose something, we want to sell it and let your family benefit from the money rather than you give it to the court and all the creditors. So... That's something that we call pre-bankruptcy financial planning. You know, if you're going to go into the bankruptcy, you want to protect whatever you can protect. Anything that can't be protected, you might as well get rid of it yourself and let your family benefit from the money. Um, Are there some other money management steps that someone should take before the actual filing of bankruptcy? Just stop using credit cards. Everybody wants to pay my fee with the credit card that they want to put on the bankruptcy. Oh, like my that. gosh. No. And, and it sounds like a good idea, but the judge mm. is not having it. You know, they, well, ju- and, and I would say we often see people um, come through our office uh, first. 
before they would approach a bankruptcy attorney, just looking at what are their options. And more often than not, they're paying the wrong bills. You know, they're paying yes. bills um, for those debt collectors that are beating down their door and not realizing that they may be putting secured assets like their home and their car or any other property at risk. The uh, creditor or, or people end up paying the creditors that bother them the most. Right. That squeaky wheel thing. Yeah. Who may not be the car or the house, you know, it, but it's just some medical debt or something like that. And um, you just pay to get these people off your back. You know? So back to medical issues, because we were talking about this before the program started, because I'm fighting with a, a, a medical billing right now. And how much of these bankruptcies are related to medical billing issues? Oh, in my, in my case, 80% wow. have wow. medical debts. I mean, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 worth of medical debt. How are you ever going to pay that back? And we, we look <laughs> at that so often, and there's just – Different approaches you can take to paying medical debt. Obviously, if you have insurance, maybe they should be paying some of that or more of that. Or a lot of times people see errors in their medical billing or they just don't realize maybe if they had approached the, say, uh, for a hot, large hospital bill and approached them for, say, negotiating a, a lower rate or an uninsured rate they often already have or a payment plan would be so helpful. Are there things that you look at someone, they've got a huge amount of medical debt, but really otherwise would be in good shape. Are there things that you say, you need to focus on this and here's some things you can do before you you come to me for a bankruptcy? Uh, ways that someone can approach specifically medical debt or other types of things that might have gone to collection? Well, these collectors, you know, they they buy these debts for pennies on the dollar. Mm. And then they're going to turn around and try to collect the whole thing from you. So... If they only spent $50 on a, a $5,000 debt, if they can get $100 from you, that's a huge profit thing for them because they didn't pay but $50 for the debt to begin with. Uh, <clears throat> once that kind of stuff happens, the creditors aren't – the debt collectors aren't going to cut you any slack because they only get paid if they collect money. And, Frank, what, what I had heard was that um, – we used to have better relationships with our bigger medical institutions and they would negotiate, but they've been in such cash crunches that they are quicker to sell off that debt. Is that correct? Yes. None, none of the companies will sue you themselves. None of the hospitals, none of the credit card companies or anything. After the 180-day charge-off period, they sell these debts to debt collectors for pennies on the dollar just to get them off their books and stuff. And the longer they can wait in between you not paying and them selling the debt, the more they can get for the debt, even if it's just a couple of weeks. So when you have these people showing up with $40,000 in medical debt, are these people who are uninsured? What's happening there? Oh, no. Even the insured people are ending up with forty and $50,000 And why bills. is that? Just the medical problems that you might have and the, what the hospitals what's charge. What's not covered? or What's not covered, plus the... Um, the hospitals don't have any kind of transparency. We don't know what these fees are. You wouldn't put your car in a shop without yeah, knowing. Oh boy, you're right about that. Exactly, or, or at least an estimate of what it's going to cost. Because if you can't get it out, you might as well not even leave it there. 
But when we go to the hospital, we just have to trust that they're going to charge a reasonable fee. Because they have you over a barrel. I mean, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's your health. It's not like, okay, I can't pick up my car. I might have to walk or hitch a ride. It's your very health. And, you know, parents will sit at home and suffer all day with illnesses. But if the kids get sick, they oh, got to yes. go to the doctor. You know, yeah. they can't talk to you and tell you what's wrong and stuff. So you got to spend that money. Even if you're sitting at home suffering, you're not going to the doctor. Your kids are going to go if they get sick. You're going to take them. Our guest today on Money Talks is attorney Frank Coxwell of Coxwell Attorneys, and we're talking about bankruptcy. But as always, we want your personal finance questions as well. And so let's invite Denise, who's called us from Michigan, I believe. Denise, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hi, I have a question about CD rates. I'm sorry it's not related to your topic right now. However, I, I saw several signs for CDs and different months. One said uh, 5.0% on a CD for 24 months. Another sign said 60 months. And then another sign said 5 months. So I'm just wondering, how do they, do you get, the full 5% if you leave it in there for five months, or do you get the 5% every month on, say, for instance, like gotcha. $10,000? Yes. Okay. So so that is typically an annualized rate. It usually says APY on it. And so say, for simplicity, you have a 5% for a one-year CD. You put in $10,000, you will get 5% of that paid at the end. And again, some of these, they, they pay more frequently. Some of these, they may compound a little bit. But let's just go real simple example. You would have an additional $500 at the end of uh, your one year. Well, if it was a 5% CD for six months, then... That's really only two and a half percent for the six months. So you would end up with 250 extra dollars at the end of six months. And then for one that is longer than one year, so that is still an annualized rate. So say it's a two or a three or a four year, then that is talking about five percent for each year. But again, just keep in mind that rate is usually an annual number. That's just a really easy way for them to standardize it. Uh, otherwise, the really short-term ones would look super unattractive, even if they were actually a pretty good interest rate. It's a way for us to compare. Yeah, yeah it makes it easy to compare those. And, and yes, you will see all different numbers, all different interest rates, all different terms uh, from different banks. Some will have uh, we often call them teaser rates when there's just some weird month number out there. Maybe it's just the two-year rate just happens to be way higher than the other. Usually, it's a, it, it could be a great deal for you if that's what you're looking for, but it's usually a teaser rate designed to attract people in for a certain Because maturity. you need those deposits, Because right? they need it's those the deposits to fund some two-year loans, <laughs> and they just need to make sure they have the cash available in the meantime. And that brings up um, a certificate of deposit is a loan to your bank. It's mm-hmm. basically a a bond that a bank issues. As is as is your savings account. And it's yes. a loan to them, and you can tell it's a loan because they pay you interest and they keep it. Okay. Thank oh. you. Sure. Thanks for calling, and thanks for listening from Michigan this morning. <clears throat> this is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Frank Coxwell of Coxwell Attorneys talking about bankruptcy. Uh, so, Frank, I think many people might have heard, you know, Chapter 7, Chapter 11. So if you would... Tell us about the the different types of bankruptcy. 
Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 are mostly chapter what 13. I do. Yeah, um, That's for individuals or married couples. There's a Chapter 12, which is for n- municipalities, businesses. Chapter 11 is for large businesses, um, maybe that are too large to fit into a Chapter 13. Uh, most of the people I do bankruptcies for want to keep their business going, um, even though they probably shouldn't, you know, because a lot of times their dreams and their businesses dragged them down to mm. the point that they're coming in to see me. But um, the government, you know, gives everybody a free pass if more than 51 percent of your debts in bankruptcy are business debt, then you get to skip the means test and things like that that we normally have to put you through to see if you qualify for the bankruptcy because the government wants you to get back out and start another business uh, they want to get rid of these debts because you hire people you stimulate the economy when you're running businesses so uh, the government's looking out for small business owners like that they want you to keep your business and continue to run it is that something you ever look at uh, someone comes to you for a personal bankruptcy and maybe they have some mix of debt uh, maybe they're not near. Maybe they're not at the place where they need a bankruptcy. But is that a way to, for them to think about? Oh, how do? What debts do I need to prioritize before I end up in bankruptcy? Not saying, oh, I'm going to strategically pay this off so I can screw this creditor. But I want to avoid bankruptcy. But I know my situation will be better if I'm if more of my debt is on my business side. For instance, is that something you help people with understanding those priorities? Oh yeah, yeah. We we help them decide what they want to hold on to and continue to pay for. And in a seven, they would just can keep paying the regular notes just like they had agreed to before for like a car or house they wanted to keep. And those would just pass right through the bankruptcy, through the chapter seven. You keep whatever you want to keep passes mm-hmm. through. You keep paying it. The court wipes everything else out. In a chapter 13, we can take all the debts that you want to keep, stretch them out over a 60-month period to lower your payments so that you get a lower payment on your car. We can help you catch up the back payments on a house and start back paying the regular payments. And the mortgage companies could do this for you anyway, but they just choose not to. Mm. Um, But, Frank, what is the advantage of doing that, a Chapter 13 versus a Chapter 7? Well, you get lower notes. Let's say you keep a car in a Chapter 7. Your note's $800. Well, it's $800 after the bankruptcy. Because you want to keep that. Okay. Nothing changes about what is, you're keeping. Is there any difference under the two filings as far as the damage to your credit report? Well, you can't get any new credit while you're in a 13. So that lasts roughly 60 months. Okay, so that's the longer so that's period the, of time okay. versus a Chapter 7 where you just clean it all off and then And your back case to closes out about three months after your um, meeting of creditors. I have an instruction package we give our clients. They have their credit back in the 700s within a year, less than a year, most of them. Because if they're paying a car note, that's a positive thing they're going to pay in a Chapter 7, you know, after the bankruptcy. So um, once we make sure everything reports as zero balance, discharged in bankruptcy, then these, these the car note that they're paying um, – will be a positive thing on the credit. Well, and the car would be, I want to keep my car because that's how I get to work and I I get to my medical appointments and all of those things. And, And if there's collectors knocking on the door, that's how I escape. Oh, is that it? Is that it? Just be careful of them showing up with the boot. You don't have to answer the door. I mean, I tell people all the time, you don't have to talk to them on the phone and you don't have to answer the door. But what, what is getting discharged? Credit cards, medical bills, check cash in places, payday loans, online loans, um, 
some secured debts, like with local finance companies, mm-hmm. because they put your TV and weed eater and treadmill on there. And, Furniture, appliances, and, yeah. And generally, they don't ever come and pick that stuff up. Because they don't exam- really want it. No, it's junk to them. And even uh, even with a mortgage, what most people don't realize is that mortgage company does not want your house. They They want to do everything they can to avoid that. Well, that used to be the way it is. I, I can blow the top off the mortgage industry right now oh, if we really? had enough time to talk about <laughs> it because I sue mortgage companies almost in every Chapter 13 I do because my experience is that all the mortgage companies are stealing money. And, and it's just the nature of business. These little fees and stuff they add on there, those are a $100 billion business every year, late fees, um, check by uh, or, uh, electronic check fees, uh, property inspections, uh, these um, appraisals, what they call broker price opinions. It's not an official appraisal, but um, all these fees that the mortgage company – oh, and let me back up a minute. Your mortgage company doesn't own your house. They're a, what we call a servicer. They're a rent collector. Uh, the houses are owned by a trust in Wall Street. And it may have 10,000 houses in each trust. And as long as, say, eight or 9,000 of those houses are producing, paying the, the monthly notes, the investors on Wall Street don't care what the mortgage servicer does with the other one or 2,000 houses. So these mortgage companies, the servicers would actually make more money if they foreclosed. Um, well, and you know, this was the big argument uh, back in 2008 through, uh, I don't know, 10 or 11 or 12, um, which was, could they re- could, were they legally able to foreclose? So people lost houses, but then the question was, these were all in a big pool of mortgages. That's correct. Money Talks is MPB Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Morning, I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Dr. Nancy Lottridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. We're talking about uh, bankruptcy today with our guest, Frank Coxwell of Coxwell Attorneys. And as promised, we have a call around the line, so we say good morning to Kevin calling in from Byron. Kevin, you're on the air with us, so go ahead. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Good. Yes, I got a question of... It's not related to the bank relative, but it's a financial question. I have um, uh, $50,000 in a, a, 20, a, a, 20, a 15-year CD, and I also have uh, 85000 saved up in my bank account. I just want to know if, if, I'm, uh, if, that, if I'm on the right path to, like, what I'm trying to, like, you know, like, is, is it safe to, like, do it that way, or should I just, you know, just try something else? Kevin, I've been with my bank for, like, 15 years. Kevin, how old are you? Uh, I'm just turned 42, ma'am. Okay, so you're still young, and, and I'm impressed that you have that much money sitting on the sidelines at 42 years old. Most people don't yeah, have... I drive a truck, so... Good for you. So are you considered self-employed? No, I work for a company. I've been on my job for 12 years. Okay. okay. Do, do they have a retirement plan that you contribute to? I also contribute to it. I got like 180 in it. Whoa! Okay, man. so there you go. I am so impressed. So, um, Kevin, you probably need to um, have sit down with somebody to look at what your whole situation is. You are certainly okay. on the right path because what you have done is you've applied the discipline of saving. But you probably need to put that together with some knowledge about financial markets so that you earn as much as possible 
within your risk tolerance, within your comfort level. Don't you think, Ryder? I think so. And usually when we're thinking about CDs and bank accounts, we're thinking about money that we want to have on hand for our daily expenses and other kind of short-term things that are coming up. So at age 42, I don't know, maybe you do have a big expense you have planned that you do need to keep some of that money in the bank. But if not, then you do want to keep money on hand for emergencies. We always say that. But a lot of the rest of that can be invested for longer term goals. Be that, put that like you've done some into just a higher yielding CD for a little bit longer. Or we talk a lot about investing in stocks uh, for much longer term goals. Like one day you're not going to be driving a truck and you're going to want to have some but, money to live but, off of. But uh, Ryder, I predict Kevin will be off the road before many of his other colleagues if he's saving like this. I think you've clearly, like Nancy said, you've done the right thing. You've done the hard thing of saving a lot, and it's just a matter of making sure you have those dollars in the places that are going to meet your future needs and serve you the best. Uh, Having a 401k, having a retirement plan with work is a great start, uh, but you might want to start looking at other things like a Roth IRA or just a regular taxable brokerage. And like Nancy said, talking with somebody who can help you understand all those different places that you can keep your money and how you can invest it would be a great idea. All right. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks. Good luck, Kevin. Good call, Kevin. Good to see you. Some financial success there. You only liked him because his name was Kevin, right? (laughs) I think that was a plant. Yeah, I think so, too. We've got a bankruptcy question. So that's uh, Raymond, who's called in from Meridian today. Good morning, Raymond. Go ahead. Good morning. I was just wondering, why did we start off talking with bankruptcy and negative cash flow? Why aren't we talking about positive cash flow and having an income? I'm sorry, I didn't catch all of it. You could either buy the money from yourself instead of buying it from somebody else and paying uh, the the fees and the the lawyer fees to, to take care of it. Why do that when you can do it from yourself? Well, you're talking about borrowing from yourself. What, How do you do that if yeah, you don't yeah, have you the? Can, if you so, there you, are you some. Have to have that income before you start borrowing from yourself, you have to have the income. This is true. I mean, and for most people, their income is their greatest source of earnings. So there are. Uh, one thing I think of the, that is considered borrowing from yourself sometimes, and it, this ties in nicely with our previous caller with a 401k, you can borrow from your 401k. But we don't recommend I don't that. know that that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. We can Frank can uh, let us know if uh, how the 401k gets treated in bankruptcy and how that loan might look. Um, and then there's the kind of concept of uh, you know bank on yourself, and that's just having that savings built up and and kind of borrowing, I suppose, from your future self by by spending the money you have and kind of obligating yourself. You know, having a very disciplined way of paying yourself back for your expenses. Uh, we talk about that a lot on this show. I, I don't want to act like we we neglect uh, saving and banking on yourself. We might not use those terms usually, but today is specifically about people who have reached the point where they can no longer do that. 
They don't have assets they can borrow from themselves again. They don't have a 401k they can borrow from. They 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 have they have just reached kind of the end of their rope in that sense or or just need the protections of the bankruptcy court. Uh, so it, particularly on the borrowing from a 401k to help extinguish other debts, is that advisable, Frank? Absolutely not. Um, the bankruptcy court protects retirement accounts, 401ks. No, they're unlimited. They're fully protected as long as you leave them where they're at. The government doesn't want you spending that money to pay f- for uh, debt debts and pay debt collectors. Uh, the government's attitude is we want to protect this money so we don't have to support you when you retire. You still got this money. So as long as you leave it where it's at, it's protected in bankruptcy. And you just leave it where it's at, let it grow, and don't ever touch it. All right, uh, Raymond, thanks for the call. And I think part of maybe what I was getting from what Raymond was saying was like a personal responsibility thing. Why would you do bankruptcy when you really should be taking care of it yourself? But as as Ryder said, Frank, that you know, and you said really at the top of the show, bankruptcy is not option number one. It's when you have run out of other things to do. This is sort of a last gasp kind of thing. That's correct. And and you ought to find out what the bankruptcy can do for you and how it's going to affect the stuff that you want to keep. You need to find that out early on because that's going to decide, like Nancy said, whether you're paying the right bills or not. You know, we don't want to spend money on credit cards and stuff when you're letting your house note go and not paying it or you're letting your car note go and you're not paying that uh, just to pay some credit cards or something. That's uh, that's not how it works. Uh, Nancy, we're talking about medical debt earlier and the sort of a side issue here. You had something that you wanted to talk about. Right, because uh, I've been fighting some medical billing. I've gotten five email bills and three paper bills, all with different numbers on them. And I can't get an answer from the billing department. Half the time when I call them, they don't even they can't even find my records. It's a mess, Frank. And so that's when you said to me, because I do have insurance through Blue Cross Blue Shield of Mississippi. And you said there is a law. Tell us about that. It's called the Mississippi Balance Billing Law. And you can do a Google search for it, Mississippi Balance Billing. But according to that law, if a medical provider accepts any money from your insurance company, then you're not liable for the rest of the debt or the rest of the bill. Um, the But yet these doctors and hospitals and providers still send us bills out. And we pay them. And we pay them. Even though this law is there on the books, it says once the insurance company pays, you don't have to pay anymore. Because that payment is an acknowledgement of that's free and clear. You've covered the whole bill, right? That's a contract between you and your insurance company and your insurance company and the doctor's office or the hospital. So they have their own contracts. We don't know or care what they are. Well, I'm writing a letter today, <laughs> and I'm going to reference this. Send it certified so you can prove they oh, got it. Oh, that's a good idea, yeah. Uh, too many people uh, deal with more, their mortgage company and stuff on the phone, and there's no record of what they told you. Exactly. And even though they're recording the call, they're not going to give you the tapes if it helps you. I mean, that's just common knowledge. You know, you're not going to get those tapes. So they'll just say they erased them or whatever. So you always want to deal with people in writing. So you've got a record of what was said. And you want them to deal with you in writing. So you lock them into whatever their story is. Most of the cases when I sue mortgage companies and creditors, I don't care what their story is. I just want to lock them into a particular story. And you can't do that over the telephone. Well, and the problem I've had with dealing with um, – 
different people every time I I make the phone call and I am spending hours of my day on the phone trying to get this sorted out. It is a time suck um, and um, it is frustrating because I just want to make sure my bills are paid. And my big worry is that this hanging out here will get reported on my credit record. They're not reporting medical bills, I think, up to five hundred dollars anymore. The there were some changes recently yeah. on the medical medical billing from the credit for credit scores, which we've discussed before. But it's it, it's it's good that they're making that a little less of a priority on credit uh, scores because those little bills like that could eat you alive. You know, just with people calling thirty dollars here, fifty dollars over exactly. there, a hundred dollars yeah. here, and you know, thirty dollars. I mean, yeah, it's only $30, but that's milk or that's a tank of gas for you. Well, not quite a tank, but (laughs) it's some gas for you. You know, and people have to make so many decisions when they don't have any money. Do I... Do I buy my kid this $15 birthday present so he can go to this birthday party? Or do I put gas in my car to get to work next week? I don't have to make that decision, but a lot of people do. You know, uh, I got this last $15. Do do I let my kid be the only one that doesn't go to this birthday party? Or I'm going to put gas in the car. And, And those are tough decisions to have to make. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Today, we're talking about bankruptcy with bankruptcy attorney Frank Coxwell. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. Got some phone calls that came in here at the last part of the show. Let's see if we could work through a couple of these before we run out of time. We'll begin again in Meridian. Dan has called in today. Good morning, Dan. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Uh, thank you for, my, uh, for taking my call. Uh, I just uh, recently just heard your show right now about maybe five minutes ago, and when you mentioned something to the effect that if a, a, a healthcare facility, hospital, or otherwise uh, receives insurance payments for services rendered, then that patient does not have is not liable to pay any. If, if the hospital sends you a bill, they're not liable. Uh, I, I almost, uh, <laughs> I mean, I almost lost my breath there because. Of all the years that I've been going to hospitals and stuff, it's an endless amount of bills and stuff. So I was, uh, question number one, um, is that true just for Mississippi and Blue Cross Blue Shield or, or any other insurance? Or And number two, if that is true, what is my recourse? Can I just tell them in a, in a letter or a phone call? Uh, no, in Mississippi, I don't have to, uh, I'm not responsible for this. Is it that simple? So, uh, no, thank you for taking my call, and I, I'd, like, I'd like you to elaborate on that. Okay, just look, um, do a Google search for Mississippi balance billing, and you'll find the law that way. And read it yourself, and it's pretty amazing. I was stunned uh, the first time another lawyer told me about it, and I said, no, that that can't be right, because these bills that I'm getting and I'm paying from all these providers, and he told me about the law. I went and looked at it. And I was just flabbergasted when I saw it. So this has been sitting there all these years. When was that enacted? Do you know? I hadn't. I didn't. I don't recall. And that is, of course, a a law just mm-hmm. for Mississippi and Mississippi yeah. providers. But most law, most other states have the same kind of laws. Ah, okay. Uh, and it's not limited to any insurance company. You know, like he asked about Blue Cross. It, it just applies to all the insurance companies that pay medical providers. And so as the, I think the second part of his question, how do you you just say, hey, the balance billing law? And the, yeah. I mean, how I would send a letter 
and ask, you know, what about the balance billing? Doesn't it cover this? And I send it certified. We don't deal with people on the telephone where we need to know what they said or what their position is. We always want it in writing. So, yeah, I would just write the letter okay. and see what happens. All right. Thanks, Dan, for your call. Let's uh, move on. Next, we'll go to Hazelhurst. Anna is on the line. Good morning, Anna. Go ahead. Good morning. I'm calling on behalf of my grandson who uh, had a bad time in his life, but he is now fully recovered from alcoholism. He owes a debt of $2,000 from where he was, his apartment in Houston. And they will not accept anything but full payment at once. And he, he, I need some answers. I would just point out that if he hasn't paid this yet, and you say they will not accept anything other than full payment at once, and he hasn't paid it yet, there's clearly some negotiating room. So I think that's the that's your window of opportunity here. Uh, but that's a great question in general. Uh, things that you may never go back to, and you maybe couldn't afford. How do you how do you deal with those things? Well, if it's just two thousand dollars, I mean that's roughly what a Chapter Seven bankruptcy would cost. So. He's on the fence where he could do the bankruptcy and get rid of that, especially if you had a lot of other debts. But um, more than likely, the statute of limitations has run on that debt. So they can't sue him for it. But that doesn't stop them from calling and trying to collect. And if they can get him to just change your phone number. Sure. I I change mine once a year to get rid of relatives I don't want to talk to. (laughs) I wouldn't hesitate to change it to get rid of these people. That's why it's taking so long to get them on their show. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of harsh. Could you talk a little bit more about that statute of limitations? What does it apply to and how do we make sure? And how long is it? Well, in Mississippi, it's three years for contracts, Mm -hmm. like a car contract or um, so if there's been no payments or default for three years, they can never sue you for that debt. But that doesn't stop them from calling and trying to collect. You know, that's where – and as long as they're not yeah. trying to sue, I, I don't – who cares if they're calling? If they but, can't sue But you. is it still reported on your credit record? Does it still affect you in that respect? Well, there again, you um, can dispute that because the debt's no good anymore. The statute's already run on it. Some states, um, they state that if you make a payment on something, that starts the statute. I've heard that. So are there any other requirements if you you talk with the creditor, if you enter in a negotiation with them, or is it just if you make a payment? Well, it doesn't apply to Mississippi. Okay. So So it's just three years from when you incurred it. For contracts and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Um, And so the 180-day default runs from your last payment. Mm-hmm. So they have to keep it on their books for six months, and they charge it off. Now, that doesn't mean you don't owe it. That just means the company, it's an accounting term, they can't carry it on their books anymore. So um, once they get that off their books, then they sell it to a debt collector. And then that person's going to be the one calling you and trying to collect. Or if they're going to sue you, if they ha- are within the statute and they can sue you, they'll be the ones to sue you. The original companies don't come after people anymore. We've got one final call. We've got about a minute and a half left for Eric calling in from Meridian. Go ahead, Eric. You're on the air with us. Yes, yeah, so I was calling concerning federal tax liabilities and bankruptcies for uh, mm. tax tax returns that you know that went on uh, unpaid. So, in in bankruptcy, whether you do a Chapter Seven or a Chapter Thirteen, we can generally discharge taxes if they're over three years old. 
Um, but you run that time from 2019 taxes aren't due until April of 2020. So that's when you have to start the three years. And if you didn't file it till October, then you got to start in October of 2020 to get the three years for 2019. But we can discharge taxes or we can pay them off over a five-year period. And is that just a general rule about taxes or is that just kind of like the Mississippi rule about statute of limitations? Does that apply nationwide or? Well, it's it came from a case um, that was against the state and the state won't reckon. If you're a day late with your tax, your state tax return, they consider it never filed. No matter when you file it, if it's late, it's not filed. So the IRS doesn't recognize that. That's something for the Fifth Circuit. But the IRS says, we understand the McCoy case, but we're not going to pay attention to that. We will allow you to discharge your taxes. All right. uh, We're right out of time. Frank, I want to give you a a quick opportunity here to tell us uh, what sort of services you offer and how someone might get in touch if they need you. Well, we do Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 bankruptcies for uh, individuals and married couples. And my phone number is 601-948-4450. All right. That's going to wrap us up for today. Money Talks is a production of MPB Think Radio, funded in part by listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to moneytalks.mpbonline.org. You can listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks. And our producer of podcasts at MPB is Jermaine Flood. So for Dr. Nancy Lotcher-Janderson, Ryder Taft, and our guest Frank Coxwell, I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks, only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.